As I read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, hear the word of the Lord. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training for righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for the gift of this Lord's Day set apart by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus a standing memorial for your people, both of Christ's deliverance of us from sin and death, and also as a memorial hope of the new heavens and the new earth we gather on Sunday, setting apart this day for the worship of the living God and to hear from you. And Lord, we have heard your word. And now, O God, as your word is opened before us, Holy Spirit, would you accompany it with your power to transform lives, to elicit and bring out faith, to create faith as the gospel is a creative word by grace to bring forth faith. Open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. And now, Father, I pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth, there's not of you would fall to the floor And remain unheard, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak today, right now? Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This is the the preeminent passage, if you're thinking about, what does the Bible say about itself? What does the Bible say about itself? And, And people who have read the Bible, or if you read a book about reading the Bible or about the Bible, uh, you're going to arrive at this passage in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. It is the, the seminal picture statement that all Scripture is breathed out by God, or your translation might say given by inspiration by God, and we'll get to that in a, in a minute. Uh, but before we kind of dive into the mechanics and the nuts and bolts of what's happening in this passage and what, what, what Scripture actually is, what the Bible is actually saying and claiming for itself here, uh, remember where we are, where Paul is wrapping up his life he's wrapping up the last written statement that he will write and he's writing to his child in the faith young or not so young anymore timothy who is he is sent to ephesus to encourage sound doctrine to build up churches to train elders to multiply the work there and timothy is in encountered Difficulty. He's encountered persecution at the hands of unbelievers, at the hands of, of pagans. He's also 
um, in, encountered the opposition that arises from false teachers, false confessors who are perverting and twisting the Word of God for their own ends. And so his work is difficult. And Paul in chains in the dungeon there in Rome writes to Timothy, as Jeremy read earlier from at first Timothy, he's not even in the dungeon yet, you know, fight the good fight. And this in 2 Timothy, he repeatedly tells him, share in suffering for the gospel. And if anyone has the right to tell us to share in suffering for the gospel, it's the one who is at present, when he's writing, suffering for the gospel. And in fact, we know from history that shortly after this, Paul himself will yield his life. His life will be taken from him and a Roman executioner's blade. And Timothy himself later on in Ephesus will be stoned or beaten to death by an angry mob that he was trying to prevent from idolatry by preaching the gospel outside to them. And he dies as they are on their way to the temple that both men give their lives in service to Jesus. And Paul in this section is encouraging Timothy, right? At the beginning of chapter 3, it's, there's going to be times of difficulty, times of danger. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, not loving good. Then, and he's, he presses into that in verse 10 by saying, you however, or but you. This shows up several times in the pastoral epistles to draw a distinction between Timothy or also Titus in Titus chapter 2 verse 1 between the authentic laborers for the gospel and those who are false professors, false teachers, and those who are outside of the faith. And so after articulating that there's going to be times of difficulty and that Timothy is to avoid such people in chapter 3 verse 5, that these false teachers like Jonas and Jambres who opposed Moses, that they, they opposed the truth, and that this hasn't changed in the thousand, almost 2,000 years since Paul wrote this to Timothy, there are still unbelievers and false professors and false teachers that oppose the truth of God. They oppose the truth of God outside of church buildings. They oppose the truth of God within church buildings. And it is imperative for Christians to have this line of, of demarcation. There has to be a, a clear-cut difference between those who belong to Jesus and those who, are, who do not belong to Jesus, despite their willingness to use the name of Jesus. You, however, have followed my teaching. So verses 10 through 13, which we dealt with last week, kind of looked in the rearview mirror for Timothy and said, you have you followed my example. You followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. You followed them, meaning you walked in them. And he generalizes Timothy's experience saying everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus, verse 12, will be persecuted. Indeed, all who will, all. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That there is a progressiveness to false teaching. There is a progressiveness 
to wickedness. Verse 14, where we were today, but as for you, again, but you. Unlike these false teachers, these evil people, these wicked ones, and the imposters who are pretending to be ministers of the gospel, preachers of the gospel, you are something different. Timothy, you cannot be an imposter. You cannot be a hypocrite. And Christian, or one who is claiming to be Christian, this must be true of you as well, not just of those who are pastors and leaders in the church, but may your confession actually be true. That there is a unique, awful predicament of those who claim the faith of Jesus without actually believing the truths of Jesus and without actually living a life surrendered to Jesus. And if that's you this morning, right? this is kind of heavy hitting at the outset, but here we are, VBS, a bunch of balloons behind me. It does not break the solemnity of this warning, the weight of this moment. To claim the name of Jesus, say, I'm a Christian, I've been baptized, I can, whatever the mechanics of your conversion you believe they were, if it's something that only you have done, and your life has never changed, you've never surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, and you leave this place, and as soon as you walk out the door, I shake your hand, we, we smile and say, have a great week, and all the stuff, whatever, we joke around at the door, and immediately... Jesus takes a second step down. He goes from Lord to co-pilot. He goes from Lord to accessory. He goes from Lord, object and point of worship, to something you put on the shelf until next week. You need to be warned about the self-deception that you are engaged in. And that fact, Scripture might indeed call you an imposter. Now, I know sometimes people are like, well, I left that questioning my salvation. Well, in fact, Scripture tells us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And one of the examinations, not the only, but one of the examinations, or I'll have two prong of it, is what do you love most? What do you love most and what is the fruit of your life? But as for you, Continue in what you have learned. That Timothy must bring to those who are being deceived and are deceiving. Those who are believing something. And this is the the tragic position of the spiritual imposter. Simultaneously being deceived and then being weaponized for for Satan's deceit. This is the malignancy of hypocrisy. That the one who is embroiled in it, their eyes have grown so spiritually dark, their ears have become so spiritually plugged, their hearts are so spiritually calcified and calloused that they do not realize that they have been deceived and continue to deceive themselves. And being in that condition with a little bit of the gospel, with a little bit of Jesus, 
They become not instruments of righteousness, but they become instruments of deceit and deception by the evil one. Because, and this is a simple way, because as we claim Jesus, and this is what you have done, right? When you go through the waters of baptism, it is a public, that is your public profession of faith. That is your faith going public. You are articulating before the world your allegiance, surrender, and new, the new life that's within you. And you are being named. It's a naming ceremony. You're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that when you do something like that, and you have some of the, the, the trappings of Christianity around your life, and yet your life at the core of it is really serving you. You're lying about your confession. You're deceiving people who observe your life. You're deceiving them about the nature of the Christian life. And no wonder they might not want it. I didn't really mean to get into all that. But I felt like I had to. And I say that, I feel like I have to. Uh... Because of being in the once, which, that which once was, the Bible Belt, this is the, one of the greatest difficulties of trying to bring the gospel to bear in our community, in many communities like ours. We have many, many churches. We have many, many people whose names at one time or another showed up on church membership rolls. And so part of the outset, you have to convince them, oh, you haven't been to church since 1974. And there's no reason why, right? There's no like providential hindrance. There's no sickness or um, physical limitations. Just, you know, I've been busy. It is long past due to consider your confession and whether or not you're in the faith. So you have to have those hard conversations. And so you have to believe. And, and that, that's a harder, that's harder ground to till up than those who are just pagans and they know it. Who are just outside of the faith and they know it. You at least, they, they're aware of it, you're aware of it, and you can start at zero. But when you're dealing with someone who has been self-deceived or deceived by some mechanics of the church... Into believing that they're in the faith, but they're not actually in the faith. You, it's, they don't come to you at zero. They come to you at like negative 10. And so you have to do some of that hard work, deep plowing to get them to zero. And that's hard. Okay, so that's why I did that. So he looks back in 10 through 13 and begins to look forward in verses 14 through 17. Because Paul's like, I'm not always going to be here. You're not always going to have a living example of faithfulness of Jesus before you. The apostles did not endure. They all died. All of them except for one died before they, their time, if you will. Their life was taken from them. John is the only one who died an old man. And this is significant because we don't look to, to, to ground us 
to provide us a picture of what we ought to do, we don't ground our hope in men and women. We don't ground our hope in apostles or bishops or priests or pastors. We don't find our courage based upon simply what another person says. And there is a great subtlety and danger in the context of deceit, deception. This is what the adversary does. Right? Satan, again, this, this should be like a multi-part sermon. So um, anyways, what Satan's primary means these days right, is lies. He lies, he deceives, he corrupts the truth, seeks to corrupt the truth. And confusion and the subversion of truth is so prevalent today. There is a grave danger for God's people when they become unhinged or unmoored, like a boat that's on the dock and they unloose the ropes and the boat begins to drift off. When God's people become unmoored, loosed from the dock of God's word, left to float. And yet, this is where many of God's people are today. There's a grave danger of biblical ignorance and biblical illiteracy, where people don't open the Bible, we don't study the Bible. There's a reason why many, many popular preachers don't open the Bible, read the Bible, preach through the Bible, because people, by and large, many, many people, have lost a taste for such things. They would rather a pastor come and tell them, how can I be successful as a parent? How can I be successful as a spouse? How can I be successful as a business person? They they want a 15-minute TED Talk. With five points of go do this. And the proclamation of the gospel is something else. My notes are all over the place now. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. This word continue is the word abide. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John chapter 15. Abide in me and I in you. Remain. So as... Wicked people and imposters go from bad to worse. They're, they're accelerating in their deceit. Timothy, plant your feet here. Continue. Remain. It's a present tense imperative. Keep continuing in what you have learned. You've received the truth of the gospel from me, but not only have you received it, you've learned it. He's not just saying, hey, swallow this without actually believing it, but Timothy has heard the gospel and he has been deeply moved by it and he's firmly believing it. Timothy, continue here. The deceivers and the deceived, they are like a white water river rushing toward destruction. And by God's grace, you must be a rock in the stream to continue to remain and abide in what you have learned and deeply believed, been convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned it. He learned it from his grandmother. He learned it from his mother. He's learned it from Paul. He's learned it from others. Look at their lives. Imitate their faith. Rather than progressing in deceit, he must persist in the truth. So if you would stand in this era of confusion and subversion of the truth, you must persist in the truth. 
and you will have pressure. That rock in the stream feels like it is under, it is, it's an unending current. And what you need to understand, and it should become more and more apparent to you, is that as the cultural revolution continues to progress, that the pressure upon you to yield upon what God has said, to, to give up some truth, to be some compromiser of clear biblical teaching, the pressure will mount. Continue in what you have learned. If you are in Christ today and Jesus is everything, He means the world to you and more, then persist in the truth. Come to the Bible. Come in the Spirit. And hear God's word for yourself, but come and yield yourself to the proclamation of God's word. When you have the ability to study the Bible with other Christians, do it. When you have the ability to hear biblical preaching, do it. Continue, persist in the truth. That which you've you've received, that which you have been convinced of. But the veracity and the truthfulness of Jesus, His Word, and the very Word of God. And follow the example of those who have taught you. So firmly can, can uh, plant your feet upon what you have learned. What have you learned? Verse 15. How from childhood, or even from infancy, the Word is there. Um, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That from a young age, Timothy was was subjected to, he was bathed over, that he received spiritual, religious education in his home. Probably from others as well, but he received it, we know from the beginning of this book, chapter 1, he received it from Lois and from Eunice. He received, he became acquainted, the the word is to know. He knew the sacred writings. What are the sacred writings? Sacred writings is another way to say holy scripture. That he knows he has been acquainted with the holy scripture. And at this point, this is the Old Testament. He's acquainted with it, he knows it. And And Paul makes this wonderful statement about the Bible. About the scriptures. The scriptures are historical. They are educational. They are inspirational. They are comforting and encouraging in all the ways that we use the Bible. But Paul says at the end of chapter 15, I mean verse 15, excuse me, they are these holy scriptures, the whole the sacred writings, they are able. That word there is the word for power. That the word of God possesses power. That there is an innate nature to what God has given to us in the scriptures that is powerful. The Bible is sufficient for the reason that God sent it. It's able, it's powerful to make you wise for salvation. So that's not only is the Bible instructing you about how to be saved. It is that. But that there's something in the scriptures 
the unique, innate power because of their source. The scriptures have power because of their source. No other literature on the planet, though it might be encouraging and inspirational and comforting and truthful, no other language, no other writings, no other book, no other statements, no other words given carry this ability. No other writing, no other words carry this power because these words have a source that is not of this world. They're able to make you wise for salvation. They tell you about Jesus. They tell you your need for Christ, that you're dead in your sins and trespasses, that there's none righteous, no, not one. And yet God, to demonstrate His righteousness, gave it forth His only Son to be a propitiation, a wrath, appeasing sacrifice for us so that God could remain just and the justifier of those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. So Scripture has an instrumental role here, but so does faith. Makes you wise for salvation through faith in in Christ Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If you would have faith in Jesus, you must know of Jesus. The instrument of faith means that it is not enough for you simply to believe something. It's not enough for you simply to believe something with all your heart. You'll find people who are rabidly committed to all sorts of things that they believe with all their heart. Faith, now listen to me carefully before you, I don't know who you're going to bring some charge to the SBC. You know, they meet here in a week or two. Um, They got their own issues going on. Um, Or before I get a nasty email, faith by itself does not save you. Just any old faith. Understand what I'm saying? So you, you, can, you can have all the faith in the world that cucumbers save you. That, that's, that's, that's not great. That's terrible news for you. Because cucumbers, I don't know about y'all. I, I feel like I'm having a lot of refrigerator stories these days. But it, they go bad like that. It's crazy. All of a sudden, it's just like liquid in a bag. It's like disgusting. Uh, so if your hope is in a cucumber, no matter how much you believe it, you could be wholly committed to it. All of your being. I believe this cucumber is going to save me. Now that sounds silly, but there's all sorts of things people do. I believe that my ability, my righteousness, my goodness, my strength, my wisdom, my smarts, my prowess in business is somehow going to deliver me to a life of flourishing. That if I just create a, 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 if I achieve my educational goals and get the job that I want, get the wife that I want, and get the dreams, then I'll, I'll somehow arrive. Well, dear one, you are slightly more, less, slightly less perishable than a cucumber. Your life is but a vapor. And you believing upon yourself is just as ridiculous as someone saying, I'm going to believe upon this cucumber. Because one day, somebody's going to bury you out here or somewhere else. 
Where will your righteousness be then? Where will your goodness, where will your bank account, your abilities and your talents and your business prowess, where will your house and all your possessions, where will it be? Not with you. Well, we don't bury that stuff out here. It's just you. Because it's going to be just you in front of Jesus. It is make you wise for faith in Christ Jesus. It is not the instrument that saves you. It's not faith that saves you. It's the object. Faith is an instrument by which God's grace stirs up our heart to accept what God offers to us in Jesus. Where is your faith? And that should give you hope today. Right? One, hopefully, maybe, maybe some of you, you're, you're believing in cucumbers or something equivalent to it. You could, you could really package all of creation into that metaphor. Buildings fall down. People decay. Jobs disappear. 401ks dissipate. Whatever else people might be trusting in. Pleasure doesn't last. All cucumbers. In a bag. Faith in Jesus is different. And this is the faith that saves because of the object. For He alone, He alone is the one who has gone from the glory of heaven, came into our world, taking on the the divine, taking on the human, living a righteous life that we could never live. All the while, truly God and truly man, surrendering and yielding himself to take on our sin, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is only Jesus who could be a part of that exchange. It's only Jesus because of his righteousness, because of his obedience, because of his yielding of his life upon the cross. It is only Jesus that can take away your sin and replace it with his righteousness. It's faith in him. Yes, he died. He was buried. He was truly dead. And then he rose. And by the power of an indestructible life, the writer of Hebrews says, he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He is interceding for his people still, and he will come back from there to bring his people to himself. Faith in that Jesus. So you can be encouraged today because you are not saved, nor are you blessed in terms of material blessing by the size, the scope, the depth of your faith. Some of y'all need that pill. It's a, good, it's a good one. It's hard to believe. That you are saved because of Christ. Not because of, hey, I'm so serious about Jesus. If that's where you're, all of a sudden you've, you've turned, the boomerang is back on you. And what are you going to do tomorrow? When life and all of its muck and its mire, its hardships, it hits you and you're like, what? Where's your faith in? It might just feel like a, like a little mustard seed. It might just feel like a sliver of a cable left holding on to Jesus. And dear ones, what you need to know is that that is more than enough 
Because Jesus is more than enough to save you. Big faith, little faith, Christ saves. Now, don't misunderstand me. We should be praying Jesus like the, that, um, the one man in the, the Gospels. I believe, help my unbelief. But you're not saved by the scope and the, the depth and the vigor of the faith that you're able to drum up. You're, faith, you're, you're saved by the one that you're trusting in. And Christ, Christ alone. Jesus alone. So there's a perfect, there's a powerful Holy Scripture, and then there's a perfect Holy Scripture. That all Scripture, uh, this this, the way that this is written, you could take this, uh, it, it, it applies to Scripture as a whole and Scripture in its parts. Scripture in its whole, Genesis to Revelation. Scripture in its parts, Second Chronicles 3. I don't even know what that says off the top of my head. Ezekiel 42, which is not an easy chapter. John chapter 3, we all love that one. All scripture in its totality and in its parts. All scripture is breathed out by God. And I don't have time to give justice to all of these things because I got somewhere I want to go. But it is the source of scripture. It is perfect because it is breathed out by God. There's, there's no other There's no other book, there's no other language, there's no other words that come from this source. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's given by inspiration. This doesn't mean dictation. This means that God in his Holy Spirit poured out upon writers, prophets, Moses, the prophets, the apostles. That they would write down the very words of scripture. That this level of God-breathedness, this level of inspiration goes down not just to meanings, not just to doctrines, but it presses down into the parts and components of sentences and to words. It's exactly, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, I think it is. The very word of God, the words. God breathes out words. That what you have, you not to take your, uh, your, you don't take your stand in the middle of that stream upon your intellect, upon your own logic, upon your own reasoning, upon your own intellect, upon your own ability. But you take your stand that all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is God's word. I heard not a one amen. Y'all gave all gave all the amens away already. <laughs> That this is God's word. It comes from God himself to us. It was given by inspiration in the moment. It has been preserved over the course of centuries by God's providence. And it has arrived before us. Inscripturated. And you can have full confidence that this is the very word of God. Despite what popular preachers might say. It is sufficient to say the Bible says. Because it is God's word. It's God's word from beginning and to end. It's God's word at Genesis 1-1. 
It's God's words in Revelation chapter 22. It is God's word. All scripture is breathed out by God and it has these two ideas. Everybody remembers the inspired part. And profitable. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. A commentator named John Stott, who has gone on into eternity, he sees this as a positive negative, right? So you're a, a positive building up and then a negative correcting in both couples. So you have two couplets here. You have teaching, you have reproof, and you have correction, and you have training. So that scripture is profitable for teaching. So what you see, how, how does the New Testament, how do the New Testament writers deal with scripture? They open it up, they read it, and then they exposit it. They articulate, this is what it means, and this is the, the application to your life. Because it's God's word, it is of an ever-present application and use. There's no part, and this is going to sound strange, especially as you get into some of your Bible readings and you get into like First Chronicles, the first nine chapters are genealogy. I'm aware. Okay, I'm aware. But all Scripture is profitable for instructing you about God, about you, about the gospel, and about how you ought to live your life. So the first part's about teaching, reproof. This is, this is really about doctrine. Scripture's profitable to teach you this is who God is. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is what man is. This is what humanity is. This is what the world is. This is what creation is. Scripture's useful and profitable toward those ends. But it's also, and this might get in your grill a little bit, it is also profitable for reproof. That not only has the Bible have God's authority to tell you what to believe, but it has God's authority to tell you what not to believe. That if you're in Christ, your faith is in Jesus, you're surrendered to Jesus, then you must think that the Bible is a, the only infallible, inerrant authority for faith and practice that stands over you. It's profitable to tell you, this is what you must believe. It does you no good. And it is self-deception. It is self-deception. It is self-deception to say, I come to the Bible and I don't like that part of it. This is what our culture today says. And so culture today, we must have progressed. We must have progressed out of that. Who in this passage is progressing out of, away from the truth? Sinners. Sinners, unbelievers, pagans, imposters, hip- hypocrites. Well, God's, God's word says this about what a person is. Well, today, God's word says this about what marriage is. God's word says this about marriage between one woman and one man for life. Everybody got upset when men started marrying men, but we should have been upset decades ago when we said, hey, divorce is no big deal. We we should have been upset then.
so many things right there where we're, where we're instructed and you need to surrender your thinking, your opinion on the matter, maybe said, to what God has said. And where God speaks, you yield. This is part of faith in your life. Okay, um, so it's profitable for teaching, for reproof. So not only is God's word profitable, comes from God to tell you what to believe and what not to believe. It even tells you what, how to act and how to not to act. Can you believe the audacity of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to tell you that you should be doing these things and you shouldn't be doing those things? Who's boss over me? I'm king of the king of the mountain. Captain of the ship, master, captain of whatever, master of the ship. At the end of the day, this becomes an authority question. Will you be under, willingly, joyfully, delightedly under the expressed, revealed, will and authority of God in his word or will you not I'm not talking about where those like Christians who are of good faith and who disagree on some some important things but second order third level third order fourth order things but at the end of the day are you going to read God's word and say yes lord it's hard it's hard Because even now, being in Christ, God's word will continue, continue to sanctify you. To draw you out from fleshliness and draw you into holiness. And in fact, believe it or not, this is what Jesus prayed for you. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The means by which that God has appointed for you to grow up into Christ's likeness. One of the means is the Bible. It's His Word. So much I want to say here. It's profitable for correction to tell you that's not the way. And then training in righteousness. This is how you live out a righteous heart. Being counted righteous by faith. This is how you now live. Will you live that way? Will you surrender to the authority of Jesus? The authority of his word. That the man of God. And really you could. He's talking to Timothy who is um, leadership in the church. Setting up elders doing things. But this could be um, expanded to any Christian. That the man of God may be complete. That you might reach the end for which God has saved you. Equipped for every good work. What's fascinating about that word equipped is that it means to be brought to an end. Paul uses it, or Luke uses it in Acts chapter 21, verse 5, that, that, they're, that when they're, they're sailing on the ship had come to an end. That's by means of, by means of God's word, you are brought to the right and proper end. Meaning that you... Um, the, the, the tree finally grows. The, the flower finally blossoms. Christ's likeness finally grows in you. You're equipped and made able for every good work. 
And the good work, by the way, is something that God gets to say is good work. This shows up, this phrase, and I'm going to, I'm going to say it. You guys are okay. The word of God here matures and equips for good work. And earlier in chapter 2, we see a holy life readies one for good work. Uh, Verse 21 of chapter 2. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. A holy life readies you for good work, where you're cleansing out sin, you're repenting of sin, you're turning to Jesus, you're seeking to live a righteous life before Him, enabled by the Spirit. It readies you for good work, and the Holy Scriptures... Equipped you for the good work. Holiness and his word. So God's word brings clarity. God's word brings strength. It is a powerful word. It is a perfect word. And we must persist here. We must, for the good of our families, for the good of our church, for the good of our community. For the good of the world, we must persist here. But above all those goods, we must do so for the glory of God. For the fame of Jesus. And even if, in God's sovereign will, we were swept away, our lives snatched from us, you can be sure of two things. God's truth abideth still. And Jesus will build his church. So dear one, you have a powerful word right before you. You have a perfect word of God right before you. Persist in it. Believe it. Obey it. Yield to it. Surrender your life to God's revealed will therein. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have... In your wisdom and purpose, you have caused your word to be spoken, but to be written down and to be preserved for us even now. And Lord, before us, we know that your word is your word because the Holy Spirit, who is its author, testifies within us that this is your word. There are many other evidences that this is your word. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would testify to the veracity and the truthfulness of your word in every heart and mind now. And that by means of this moment, that there would be a greater surrender to Jesus. Not just in word, not just as a performance, but that in life, that we would seek to come under what you have said in your word, would that be true for us individually? And would that be true for us as a church? That more and more we would surrender to what you have said. So Lord, help us. And I pray there are some here that their heart is far from you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make that known to them by the sharp grace of conviction. And that in that moment they would see 
with the eyes of faith, Christ. Arms open, saying, sinner, come home. Would they yield that call and entrust their lives to the Christ, the only name given among men by which we must be saved, Jesus. Amen.